Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. That's a song that we can sing with confidence because God has promised to build his church and God has even promised that as his church shares the gospel, the day will come when the knowledge of God covers, covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. And we pray with confidence when we ask God to help us as we study his word. The very same Holy Spirit that inspired it is present now and if the Holy Spirit starts knocking inside of your soul and inside of your mind and inside of your heart, there's no stronghold that can stand up against that Holy Spirit of God. So let's pray with confidence. Holy Spirit of the living God, as we open your word now, you inspired it. It is without error in every part and in the whole. And now we ask that you would illumine our hearts and our minds where there are strongholds of sin, where there are weeds and pockets of unbelief Holy Spirit of the living God, have your way as we read and study your word. Amen. One verse this morning, James chapter 1, verse 21. This one verse has three parts. It says in James 1, 21, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The first part of that verse says to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's the first part. The second part of that verse says receive with meekness. That's the second part. And the third part of that verse, the most significant part of that verse, is his description of the word of God, which says the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This verse has three parts, which reminds us I think we could agree together of the important truth that that most blessed lunch meal, the hamburger, has three component parts. It has the bun, top and bottom. It has the meat. And then it has the toppings, whatever they may be. Maybe it's just a pickle. Maybe you're a ketchup only. Maybe it's some applewood smoked bacon and deep fried jalapenos, whatever you put on your burger, guacamole, California style, or, a, or a over easy egg. But these are the three parts of the burger, the, bu the bun, the topping, and the meat. And if I was to survey this church, I kind of, maybe I should, if, but if I was to survey this church and say, which is the most important part of the burger? There would be a few outliers who are like bakery obsessed and the bun means everything to you. There are some of you who are so, sort of sauce aficionados and the toppings makes the difference, but I would think the vast majority would agree with me, which is the correct opinion, that the meat, the meat is the most essential element of the burger. In this three-part verse, it certainly says to put aside the wickedness, and it certainly says to receive with meekness, but the most essential part of this verse is what it says about the meat, the word of God. And I could prove that to you by simply saying, think about it. How would you know what to put away if not for the word of God? How would you know how and what to receive with meekness without the word of God? 
It is the word of God that is the most central portion of this three-part verse, which is so very practical. It's the word of God that empowers and enlightens and emboldens us to put away what's wicked. And it's the power of the word of God that enables us to receive the word of God. And so I want to show you these three parts, and there'll be some very practical lessons for all of us. And so I want to preach this with joy and with confidence. The first part of our three-part verse is where it simply says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Maybe your translation says, rid yourselves. This is the Greek word for taking off a muddy garment or taking off shoes that you have been mowing the lawn with. You take them off and you put them aside because they're dirty and they don't belong. This verse says you used to go that way. You don't, you don't go that way anymore. You know, there are a whole bunch of Bible verses about putting aside the, uh, the verse uh, that Brennan and Terry and Becca read this morning from Colossians 3, had a lot in there about putting aside sin. There are so many, so many verses about putting aside sin. Listen to Romans 13, verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's Romans 13, verse 12. Or what about 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18? Flee from sexual immorality. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Or what about Ephesians 4, verse 22? Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and has grown corrupt according to deceitful desires. That's Ephesians 4, verse 22. And we already heard, I think, Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It says in Colossians 3, verse 7, hey, church, in these, you used to walk. That's the old you. You used to live this way, but now you must put them all away. I just read five verses real quick that tell you to put aside all those things. Question, why are there so many verses in the New Testament telling Christians to put away their old ways? Why would there be so many verses in the New Testament telling Christians to put aside their old ways? Why would my mom tell me so often to put my dirty clothes in the hamper? Why would she do that? It's the same answer to the question. Because we so, so commonly go back to our old ways. I wish that it was phenomenally unusual for a Christian to revert back to her or his old ways, but it is not phenomenally unusual. It is so easy to slip back into the old ways because we are sinners and we reject repeated warnings and we carve out some exceptional place for ourselves that I know the Bible says that, but I'm a different case or whatever it is. Why is it so common that we're commanded to put away the old way of living? because of the abundance of wickedness all around us. Even if you do put away a certain kind of wickedness, there is another kind of wickedness coming for you to invite itself into your life. There's so much wickedness around us. Sin takes so many forms. Depravity and sin is ubiquitous. 
And our ancient foe, the devil, though one little word shall fell him, he still rails against us. And he just comes at us full frontal with a battering ram at the front door. And so finally we put that away and we get victory in that area of our life. But sure enough, our old enemy climbs up into a crow's nest and then he uses a sniper rifle against us through the windows. And then by the word of God and the Holy Spirit, we have victory over those window areas. And then he does a bombing campaign through our roof. And then when we get victory over that, he does some sort of tunneling infiltration through our basement, our enemy. And the wickedness in the world system is rampant. That's why there's so many warnings to Christians to stay away from wickedness. Why is it so common to tell Christians to put aside their old ways? Sadly, it is because we Christians are experts at making excuses. And we Christians are experts at making ourselves an exception to what God's word says. Because sin enslaves us and makes us willing accomplices in our own spiritual suicide. Sin enslaves us and makes us gladly assist our captors who are ruining our lives. Beloved, I hope you think about this a long, hard time this week. Perhaps the most dangerous thing about sin is that it deceives us into harming ourselves and resisting that which would help us. Perhaps that is the most dangerous thing about sin is that it deceives us into harming ourselves and it, it motivates us to aggressively resist that which would help and rescue us. This verse says, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. What I'm saying is that the filthiness and rampant wickedness of sin strangles your ability to recognize and resist the filthiness and rampant wickedness of sin. This is why it's so dangerous. So this first point is pretty clear. Church, I'm simply saying this. Take sin seriously. That's a point you might expect to hear in a Bible church. So it's a point you might say, I've already heard 10 sermons about that, but slow down and let it demand your attention and the reflection of your mind this morning. That's why I prayed that the Holy Spirit would help us. Take sin seriously. One of the glorious victories of a solid expository ministry of the word of God is that when we go through the Bible verse by verse, we can become persons who obtain and retain a stronger sense of sin and the need to be delivered from it. A stronger sense of sin and the horror at committing it. A stronger sense of sin and the, and the, the eye-watering tears of the price that Jesus paid to deliver us from it. Consider how dishonoring sin is to our beautiful, thrice-holy God. Consider how utterly ruinous sin is to your relationships and take sin seriously. Somebody said, to the unconverted, sin is a trifle. To the worldly Christian, sin is a trouble. But to the mature Christian, sin is a tragedy. How seriously do you take sin? 
So I read a sermon last week written in 1903 and preached in Chicago about the seriousness of sin. I love reading sermons from the early to mid-1900s because nobody preaches like that anymore. This is what the preacher said. Turn the spyglass from looking at the world to looking within. Look into the ruin of your own conscious spirit. Here, within your soul's gloomy chamber, the loosened passions rage and chafe. Here, huddle wild thoughts. Here sits remorse, scowling and biting at her chain. Here drives on the will in the chariot of war. Here lie the blasted affections, weeping out their life in silent injury. All that you see without in the wars and the craziness of the world is represented within the appalling disorder of your own spirit. Your view of sin reveals a lot about you. Do you regard it as a trifle? As something to be toyed with? As something to be entertained by? Or do you regard it as a serious sorrow and something to weep over? So beloved, I just am urging you from the word of God, take sin seriously. Make this your prayer. My sins, how slowly do they leave to earthly things inclined. But wean me, Lord, and let me have thy self-denying mind. Purge me from every evil blot, my idols cast aside. Cleanse me from every sinful thought, from all of self and sin and pride. Ask the Lord to cleanse you. And ask the Holy Spirit of God to help you put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Well, that's the first part. What about the second part? Take the word of God aggressively. If the first part was take sin seriously, the second is take the word aggressively. Receive it with meekness. Receive it with meekness. It says there, receive with meekness the implanted word. That word for receive simply means to take it from God's hand. Open up your hands with receptivity and teachability and willingness to be changed. What is meekness? Meekness is the opposite of the anger in verse 19. Meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness. Meekness is the opposite of self-protective defensiveness. So meekness is receptivity and teachability and softness and openness. Receive it with an active, urgent sense. We all know what it's like to be driving or watching something and to have a commercial come on that we don't care about. It's for a product that we would never buy in a million years, so we tune out. Or we know what it's like to look at the news and there's a, some story about some political development in Kazakhstan and that's just not a news story that we care about. This says, receive the word of God eagerly with meekness. Don't bring it to your mouth like some foul-tasting medicine that you have to choke down. Bring it to your mouth like your favorite food. Listen to it like, like words from the love of your life. Let me give you three suggestions for how to receive the word of God with meekness. Number one, prepare your heart by turning to God in prayer. Prepare your heart by turning to God in prayer. Ask God for help. These are all of the prayers of Psalm 119. Open my eyes, order my steps, capture my heart, melt down and reframe my affections. Open my eyes, open my heart. Prepare your heart by turning to God in prayer. And listen, listen, let me tell you, 
I'm exercised about this in particular this week. Some of you, too many of you, are too hesitant and too mousy about your own ability to hear and obey the word of God. You've let you talk yourself into the fact that you're not really good at studying the Bible and you're not really good at obeying the Bible. And I want to say, get rid of that. Look, John 14, 15, 16, 17, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he says this, hey, none of you can get the word of God and none of you can obey the word of God. So I'm about to die and rise again and ascend to heaven. And this is my covenant promise. The second I get to heaven, I'm gonna send my spirit. And he says in John 16, when my spirit comes, you will have eyes that can see the word of God and you will have feet that can follow the word of God. How dare we believe that we're not able to understand or not able to obey the word of God? The blood of Jesus and the ascension of our Savior sealed that promise of the Holy Spirit to us. So when you pray, pray with confidence. I don't, I don't feel this exercised about pray with confidence that your great aunt's big toe will be healed. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But if you're about to pray that you will be changed by the word of God, don't you dare pray that with a doubt. Jesus is risen and he is ascended and the spirit of fire is here. Prepare your heart by turning to God in prayer. Number two, purify your mind by turning away from worldly entertainment. Purify your mind by turning away from worldly entertainment. You know, it says to put aside all wickedness and filthiness. You know, the Lord God is beautiful. The holiness of God. Maybe this sounds out there to you, but this we believe. The holiness of God is the most ravishingly beautiful thing in the universe. The holiness of God is the most ravishingly beauty beautiful truth or reality in the universe. And we have a hard time seeing the beauty of the holiness of God when we fill our eyes with the mud of crass humor and lascivious images. And we're entertained by these things. This makes us worldly. And so we're weak and small and blind to the beauty of God's holiness. All for more Christians who are alive to the beauty of God's holiness. And so, of course, they turn aside from worldly things, not from some weird puritanical impulse, but from, from, from blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. I want to see God. There's nothing better than him. And then a third suggestion, please the Lord by forgiving and refusing to grumble. This is how you receive the word of God. Please the Lord in relationships where you forgive and in circumstances where you refuse to grumble. Please the the Lord by forgiving in your personal relationships and by not grumbling about your personal circumstances. First of all, we need to forgive others. That's again from verse 19. Being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to be angry to others. You know, like from in Matthew when Jesus says, if you're going to go to church and like get something out of the worship service, it cannot be the case that you are just an absolute adversarial enemy situation with your brother. 
leave the altar, go make things right. We have to have, we have to forgive and be at peace in our personal relationships. Maybe you're not getting through in Bible study because of bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart. But the other thing is that sort of grumbling attitude about our circumstances. Psalm 106 verse 25 says that Israel grumbled in their tents and so they could not hear the voice of the Lord. That's a common phrase in the Old Testament. They grumbled and so they couldn't hear the voice of the Lord. If you're grumbling about all of God's providential circumstances in your life, how are you going to become a person who has ears to hear what our good God who's sovereign over everything is going to say to you? So put aside the grumbling, put aside the unforgiveness and prepare to receive by pleasing the Lord in relationships where you forgive and in circumstances where you refuse to grumble. Well, those, <clears throat> those of course, are the, the first two, to take sin seriously and to take the word aggressively. And then the third and final point is, is, to, is the word of God. This is, the, this is the meat of where we're at. And the word of God is called the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Trust the ability of the word of God and believe in the necessity of the implanting of the word of God. Trust the ability of the implanted word. Set your heart on the necessity of having the word implanted and then trust that it is able to save your soul. I love that it says the word of God is able. The word of God is able to save your souls. The ability of the word motivates the believer to receive the word. The ability of the word motivates the believer to put aside everything that would get in the way of me receiving the word. The word of God is able. Everything we need for life and godliness is here. And the word of God, it says here, isn't that interesting? It says the implanted word. He mixes his metaphor. In the first half of the verse, he says, put aside the filthiness, like taking off the shoes that you had used to mow the lawn with that are all filled with dirt and grass clippings. He said, it's an external thing, put aside this. So if he was gonna keep his metaphor the same, he would say, put on the word of God. Why does he switch his metaphor? Well, Speaking as a Bible teacher, one reason that in, I have switched my metaphor is when I use an um, illustration or a metaphor and I just see all these blank looks like, we don't know what you're talking about. Are you speaking a different language? Or is this a Swahili service or what? And, I, and my metaphor is not getting through, so I switch it. That's not what he does here. It's not because his metaphor wasn't getting through. I, I don't know exactly why, but this is my guess. What he's going to say about the ability of the word of God um, it's so essential that the word of God be inside that he refuses to use a metaphor that will keep the word on the outside. Other places, he says, put on. He doesn't say that here. He says, receive the implanted word. He doesn't want for a half of an instant to leave the word of God in some sort of external outside of me. He does everything he can in the Koine Greek language, English in our morning, that to drive it so deeply inward. The word implanted is like uh, a seed in a garden. So let's work that controlling metaphor and that controlling image. Your soul is soil. Your heart 
is the soil. Your soul is soil. And what is planted in it grows. Now, let's work backwards in our verse. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Wickedness and malice and sin are rocks in the soil of your soul or they are weeds in the soil of your soul. This sort of anger and bitterness that leads to the ongoing weeds of resentment and and this sort of toxicity by which you become deaf to the pleas of God's love. The weeds of worldly entertainment where you're laughing and enjoying sexual immorality so much in entertainment that you, you can't have a sensitive heart to what God says about these things. These things need to be pulled up by the roots and tossed out so that the good seed of the word of God can take root. So I think it's interesting that he changes his metaphor. And I also think at the very end of the verse, this is something else that's curious. You see what he says? Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. If I'm reading that right, receiving with meekness is a present tense imperative, but the implanted word is a past tense reality. In other words, it has already been implanted. How curious, how curious. It's like I'm I'm about to tell you, okay, right now, drink the milk that you're gonna go to the store and buy tomorrow. It's a a curious statement. Or open the door and welcome the guests that have already been in your house for six hours. Receive right now the word that's already been implanted in your soul. Why is that? Well, is this not the paradox of the Christian life? Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Oh, those that he say, those that he calls, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. Our calling and our sinless presence in heaven is like a reality right now, though it hasn't happened yet. And so he says, walk worthy of that calling. Become who you are. Walk in practice what you have been given in position. Take on in personal, uh, in personal appearance the very image of the daddy who adopted you into his family. And he didn't wait until you became like him to adopt you. He adopted you in his sovereign grace. But take that on now. Take that on now. When it says that the word has been implanted in us, Of course, that's a reference back to Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 33 and the new covenant promise that that, that God by his spirit will plant the word in the lives of those who are being born again. Maybe what I love most about this passage is that here in our modern life hacks era, if we were writing this passage, we would immediately, we would immediately publish a how to have a quiet time, A, B, C, D, E, F, G thing. But he goes deeper than that. 
He goes to, to the only thing that really matters, the thing of utmost importance, which is if the word of God is implanted in you by the spirit of God, whatever quiet time you do, it's going to work. If the word of God is not implanted in you by the spirit of God, whatever quiet time you're going to do, it ain't going to work. We can have the best Bible reading scheme ever. The most there's an app for that system ever that keeps us doing and doing and doing. But if you are first and foremost not born again, James chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth. There it is again, by the word, by the word of truth, by implanting the word within us, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You can try to have a quiet time. You can even have a sort of a successful follow a system quiet time. But if you have not been born again, what will it do? For all of my ministry, I have been a pastor who has just told people again and again and again and again, you got to read the Bible. You got to read the Bible. You got to get into the Bible. And I plan on doing that for the rest of my ministry. But it is also the case that from this text and many texts like it, I have to admit, it is entirely possible for you to read the Bible every day and end up lost. Because the Spirit of God never given you the gift of new life and the old you of living in wickedness and filthiness has never been changed by the, by the purging of the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit needs to give you a softened heart. The Spirit wields the rake of repentance that pulls the rocks and the weeds out of the soil of the soul. It is not our doing that makes us Christians. It is our hearing with faith that makes us Christians. We are born again. I don't, I don't want a single soul in here to walk out believing that that verse says, hey, you are able to save your soul. That is not what it says. This verse says that the word of God is able to save your soul because the spirit of God who inspired the word of God, now that the son of God has ascended to heaven, that very spirit in the mighty work of regeneration will implant the word in your heart so that you can become a doer. Of course, I want you to change your habits of filthiness. Of course, I want you to change your habits and be more disciplined in having a quiet time, but it'll only happen if the Spirit of God is within you. It is not our doing that makes the difference, though we have to do our doing. It is our hearing of the Word of God by the presence of the Spirit of God in our soul. Jesus Christ makes us new by his spirit within us so that we have new desires, new disciplines. We have new sorrows. Sin makes us sad instead of happy. And we have new tastes. The filthiness of worldly entertainment doesn't taste good anymore because we have a new taste for God's holiness. These are the benefits and the gifts of salvation. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the beautiful Father of lights. And the greatest gift of all is that he's caused us to be born again by the word of truth. Therefore, church, 
we put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and we receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save us all. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, as you inspired these very words from the mouth and the pen of your servant James, now illumine them into our minds and into our hearts that we might understand them, that we might be changed by them, that we might remember them as valuable. We might even weep over them as convicting and then that we might draw on them as the very presence of your spirit changing us within. This we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.